those um, Netflix series or some uh, action movies or some kind of drama that you would be partaking of. And I know that there are a few that I like to watch. You know, sometimes I, I like police dramas. I like action films and things like that. And I like hospital uh, shows that uh, you know get into all the the nitty gritty of uh, operations and so kinds such, such as that. And I know I kind of get uh, into things that perhaps that some people might not have the taste for. But one thing that you notice is in all of these series and all of these movies, you have some type of uh, an overlying plot line that is going on, something that is continuous throughout all the series or through the whole movie. But then you have all these minor characters too, don't you? And each one of them has some kind of a subplot. And, you know, I think that that's what we're seeing in this pandemic. As far as the news is concerned, and as far as a lot of people are concerned in this uh, time that we're living in, there's this big plot that is going on, this, this line of drama with the uh, COVID-19 virus. But there is also something that we need to be very much aware of, and that is that there are 7.59 billion people on this earth, and God has a subplot for every single one of you. Every single one. That God's working in some way in the life of every single individual on this planet. Whether they're connected with the COVID-19 virus or not. It's pretty fascinating to think about, isn't it? We see, we have a sovereign God. And whatever you're going through, it might be, as we have prayed about already, somebody that's going through a hospitalization. Or maybe you're a loved one who can't get to the person that you would love to see because they're going through a surgery. Or maybe they have the COVID-19 virus. And there are just so many different circumstances that we can't face in our own wisdom today. You may be somebody who's stuck at home and you're homeschooling for the very first time. And that's a very difficult thing to suddenly be thrown into. Perhaps this has exacerbated marriage issues and other conflicts that you've had in your life. Maybe you're somebody who has lost a job or perhaps you've fallen ill to something else besides the COVID-19 or you, had, you were planning on a surgery and you can't have that or, or maybe your business is in jeopardy of closing. There are so many circumstances that we may be going through as individuals. But God's word has an answer for them all. And today I, I hope to encourage you with four truths from Psalm 139. Now if you look at Psalm 139, which Bobby read for us just a little while ago, we see at the very top of the page uh, in, that bi- in, in the biblical text a little prescription or superscription, some call it, this written, and it says, For the choir director of Israel by King David. So David has written this psalm. It's a, it's a song for their worship. And when we read through it, it is a, a sweet picture of the relationship that David has with his Lord. We see the tenderness of God's caring for his people. We see God being with David and protecting him as his child. We see a sovereign God, though, that we're reminded of that controls all things and works all things after the counsel of his will, that has purposes in mind. And we see a picture of God's wrath and also his mercy in this psalm. But this is what David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes for us to partake of as we go through trials as well. The first truth that I want you to see here in verses 1 through 6 is that God knows what you're going through. David prays in verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. God knows what you are going through because he knows you. David says, you have searched me and known me. Now, if you're somebody who has placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ... You've repented of your sins. You've believed and you've gained eternal life. 
And that's not just a, a quantity of life that goes on forever, but it's also a quality of life. We see in John chapter 17, verse 3, that Jesus said, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So when we believe, when we become Christians, we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, and we have God as our Father as well. In John chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus says, I know the ones I have chosen. There's another picture of God's knowledge of us, though, that, that he's chosen us to be his people. And the passage goes on. It says, and for those that he's chosen, he says this in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, in verse 14, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So David here is one of God's sheep. He is one that God has chosen for himself. And we're going to see the description of his relationship with God is applicable to you and to me this morning as well. In another psalm, David writes in it's Psalm 23, verse 1, a very familiar psalm. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. So he has this relationship with the Lord. And David tells us that God not only knows you, but he knows what you do all day long. Look at verses 2 and 3. You know when I sit down, when I rise up, you scrutinize my path my lying down, and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. That's pretty comprehensive, isn't it? When you sit down, when you get up, when you lie down, wherever you go, then when you go to sleep. Just think about when you sit, what you're doing when you sit. You know, perhaps you're at, at home right now worshiping. You're listening to this, but uh, we probably do a lot of sitting around that we never did before when we're having this stay-at-home uh, guideline. You might be watching a movie when you're sitting, working from home, attending a Zoom meeting, reading a book, or just resting. But Jesus knows what you're doing all the time. When you get up to make a meal, when you rise up, you, you rise up to change a diaper, you mothers at home are... Or you get up to go work on that garage project. He knows. And when you finally go to sleep, he's watching you sleep like a loving mother watches over a child that she just sees sleeping there, and that child is so beautiful. Well, God sees each one of us as his precious, dear child that he just wants to take up in his arms, and he watches over you as you sleep. There's so much of a, a closeness of relationship that is expressed here. He doesn't just know your ways. It says that he scrutinizes your way and he's intimately acquainted with them. This means that God cares about every little detail of your life. You believe that? Isn't that amazing to, to think that God, the God of the universe who created everything, and there's 7.59 billion people on the earth, and he knows every little detail. And for believers, he is keeping his protecting hand and in just engaging your life at every moment. And guess what? He has his hand upon you all through it. Verse 5 says, you have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. <clears throat> the first half of that verse reminds me of a military convoy, convoy you know, escorting a, a king or some dignitary. You know, have a, those cars or tanks or whatever that go out in front. Then you have those that come behind. It says, you've enclosed me behind and before Isaiah 52, 12 says, For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. How comforting is that? The Lord's going before you. He's following behind you. But there's not just protection here while you travel. There, 
There is also the picture there of his hand being upon your shoulder. I know it was not too long ago uh, that I was just really struck emotionally, just in tears over, uh, just, just mourning over uh, the, the lostness of a relative. It just really struck me. And as I teared up and cried, somebody just put their hand upon me. And it was just comforting. It was soothing. Physical touch means a lot, doesn't it? Well, here we see that the Lord is to be pictured in our minds as placing his hand upon us. My wife uh, brought to my mind this saying. Says that she said that God doesn't practice social distancing. Isn't that good to realize right now? That as much as you have to keep six feet from other people and not gather in ten or more groups, you have God right with you, intimately putting his hand upon you. And he even knows what you're thinking. Now, I know that could be a little unnerving to some degree, and, and it should be, but it's a very important thought. David says in verse 2, you understand my thought from afar. God understands you so well. Now, there are people in your life that, uh, you know, they, they look at you and they can just tell what you're thinking sometimes. They know you so well that they, they know what you're probably even about to say. And, and uh, you know, sometimes my kids, if I'm, too, if I'm silent for too long, they'll get suspicious and they'll think, oh, he's thinking of a joke. One of those terrible dad jokes, right? Actually, I tell good ones, but. <clears throat> you know, you might be going through things like, like fear. You might be afraid that um, you have a family member or a friend that's going to contract this illness. God knows what you're thinking. He says he understands my thought from the far. You might be afraid you're going to contract this illness. You might be afraid that you're going to lose your job or... You might be worried or anxious. You might be angry over how somebody's handling this situation. Or maybe this has brought you so close to somebody that you have conflict with, maybe even in a marriage relationship or a child-parent relationship, that it's kind of exacerbated that anger that somebody has. Some people complain about their situation. Well, God knows what you're going through, and he knows what you're thinking. And he understands. He understands uh, the circumstances and, and why we might be tempted in that way. And the Psalms are filled with people having the wrong perspectives and the wrong attitudes a lot of times and even complaining against God. But that's the, the beauty of it is that God lets us start in those reactions a lot of times. Oh, I wish we were so holy and righteous that we would never have the wrong reaction to our circumstances. But he starts people there. And they pray. They're going to the right place. And they start to talk to God about their circumstances and how they're feeling about it. And sometimes it's loneliness. Sometimes it's anger. Sometimes it's anxiety and worry. Sometimes they need to change. They want to change in their circumstances. But all of these things, the Lord is able to handle them. And he's able to bring about the change in thinking that we need to have. You know, God even knows what we're going to say. Before we say it. It's really amazing in uh, verse 4. It says, even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. He even knows what we're going to say before we say it. This really describes a close intimacy of God with us, doesn't it? When you really sit back and think about how well God knows you and how intimately and intricately he is involved in your life, it ought to overwhelm us. It ought to blow our minds. And that's what it does to David. He says in verse 6, he says, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. It's like, wow. 
You have all of that knowledge. You're, you're omniscience. You're, you're the all-knowing God. And you turn all of that towards me. It shows us that he cares about every single detail of your life. But he doesn't just know what you're going through. He is with you while you are going through it. We see this in verses 7 through 12 as we'll work through. It's one thing to know that somebody knows what you're going through, but it's, it's way more reassuring to have them with you. I told you that I like some action movies and uh, police shows. and uh, Sometimes you have a situation where you have somebody who's going to go undercover. They're going to go take care of some type of uh, transaction, and so then the rest of the FBI or whoever it is is going to move in on them and, and, and come in at the last minute and rescue the one who's undercover and arrest the perpetrators. <clears throat> but if, uh, if you were the one that was going un- undercover and they told you, hey, you know, don't worry, we've got a sniper up on the ridge and he's watching over you, you wouldn't be quite as reassured as if he were able to say, hey, I'm going with you and I have a weapon as well. I would want both. I think that the way we need to think about God is, yes, does he have the big picture? Does he see us from afar? Yes, but he is also present with us throughout whatever we're going through. He's with you wherever life takes you. Look at verses 7 through 9 says, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, Sheol's the grave, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, which for them that would mean to the east, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, that's the west. He's basically saying, There is no place where you are not present, Lord. Is that encouraging? He's with you right now. Now, now David's not saying he wants to run from God. You know, he says, where can I go from your your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? He's not saying that he wants to do that. Some people have wanted to do that. Remember Jonah? He was told to go east to Nineveh and instead he fled to go west to Tarshish well he couldn't go away from the presence of the Lord the Lord was ahead of him and had a giant fish to swallow him and to give him a free ride back to uh, the land and send him to uh, Nineveh so God's with you wherever life takes you And God's going to lead you through that trial. Look at verse 10. It says, Even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. Here we see the hand of God again. Back in verse 5, it referred to comfort coming from God laying his hand upon me. But here we have two other pictures. Even there your hand will lead me. This is a picture similar to what it would be if you have a mother who is taking the hand of her little child and leading this child along. The Lord takes our hand and he leads us. The second picture that we see here is the, like a loving daughter caring for her aged mother. And she, she takes her and it says, your right hand will lay hold of me. Have you seen that where... Somebody's taking care of an older person who, who might fall. and They're leading them to wherever they need to go, maybe to help them get into the car, or maybe even to go to the restroom or to get into bed. Many of us think of ourselves as, as strong and self-sufficient, don't we? We have no need of help. And maybe you don't have those physical needs to be led alone or led along or, or to be helped. But when it comes to life, 
You need God to take you by the hand and lead you. You need him to take hold of you and to hold you up. And you need his comforting presence where he would lay his hand upon you. In Psalm 23, David said, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of the death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. When God does lead you through life, they're going to be from some very dark times. And it's very important to realize that even though he might lead you through some dark times, that he's going to be with you. And in those dark times, David tells us that God will light your way. Look at verses 11 and 12. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me. You ever felt that way? Just overwhelmed by the circumstances of a dark time? And the light around me will become as night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Maybe you lose your job. You lose your house. Maybe you have to declare bankruptcy. You start to get sick. Maybe you get this sickness or some other sickness. At some point in your life, we're not just talking about the circumstances right now, but we need to think about this every single day of our life. There are going to be some dark times. There are going to be some rebellious children. There are going to be divorces. There are going to be people who apostatize, go away from the Lord. But how are we going to get through this? The Lord tells us in many uh, different places in Scripture that he's going to be with us. In Isaiah 41.10, it says, he says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What a beautiful picture. God being with us and strengthening us and helping us and upholding us. Maybe you're worried or anxious. You're troubled and afraid. Well, he comes to you and he says in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Maybe you're lonely. You feel lost. But God says in Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we can say with confidence, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mortals do to me? These are encouraging thoughts. God knows and cares about every single detail in your life. He knows and he cares about you. And he's right there with his hand upon you, leading you by the hand and upholding you with his hand no matter what you go through. But there's more. God even planned what you're going through. He's even planning what you're going through. Verses 13 through 18 show us this. First of all, we see in this little portion of the text that God planned you. <laughs> you know that God at some point decided to plan a George or a Frida, a Louise, and a Bill. God determined to design, make, form you in your mother's womb. Just the way you would be. And God made you exactly how he wanted you to be. There's no mistakes. Even defects that we would think of as defects are part of God's wise crafting of a person. Listen to David. He says to God, For you form my inward parts. 
You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. You, my friend, have great value. In the beginning, when God created mankind and made them male and female, he made them in his image, in his likeness. And then, after that, through the process of procreation, he has continued to make men and women in his image. This passage shows how intimately God has been in the process of bringing you into existence. He says, like a potter forms the clay that he formed you. You formed my inward parts. Like the weaver does with the thread, he wove you together. He made you. You were skillfully wrought, brought into existence. And he did this in your mother's womb. He calls it a a secret place. Uh, The depths of the earth is a figure of speech for a mysterious place. Just beautiful, detailed expressions of God's creation of you and me. God bless those mothers. Just think about what's going on in the womb of a mother after she conceives a child. God is at work Weaving, forming, shaping. It's just a beautiful process. And we, we should really sing hallelujah as we think about a child. And what a miracle. What a mighty work of God that is. And, and of course, this causes us to, to think about the value of life. And also life beginning at conception. And God planning for each child. So God planned you for this moment. Whatever you are going through, uh, you were created for such a time as this. And he made you the way he wanted you to be for this moment. And then God planned the moment too. We see in verse 16 that God planned every day of your life. He says, your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was none of them, there was not one day having occurred, but that God previously had planned that day. Before you were conceived, God planned every single day of your life. That means He planned today, doesn't it? You know, we only have today. We don't know if we have tomorrow. And we should think every single day, okay, God, what have you got in store for me today? Jesus says we're not to worry about tomorrow, for each day has enough trouble of its own. Don't borrow tomorrow's troubles. So when we think about this, we we ought to really treasure a day that the Lord has made. And as we, we think about what's happening in our lives, it's no surprise to God. He planned these things. Somehow in his wonderful sovereignty and his providential leading and guiding of all things uh, and using the means of, of people and circumstances, he planned this for his purposes. And it reminds us of the, the sovereignty of God, doesn't it? There are many passages that would express the sovereignty of God, but one of them is Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. God says, remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all of my good pleasure. 
The end from the beginning. From ancient times to the presence. God has been accomplishing his good pleasure. His purpose is what will stand. Ephesians 1 to 11, when we come to the New Testament, we see that we've been chosen by God before the foundation of the world, that we have been foreknown and predestined, elected, called. In Ephesians 1 11, it says, Also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. That's what God is doing in your life today. He's working all things, all those people, all the circumstances, all of those thoughts, all of the words, everything in your life he is working together according to the counsel of his will. God is in the details too. It's not just kind of big picture. And in uh, Proverbs 16, 33, it says, The lot is cast into the lap. That's kind of like rolling dice. But its every decision is from the Lord. Maybe you're stuck at home and you're playing Monopoly. I mean, games can test what you're made of, can't they? They might reveal some uglinesses in that heart. Don't be surprised if little things are used by God to expose and shape you. Matthew 10, 29 says, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. You're valuable. God knows when a sparrow falls from the sky. And they won't fall to the ground apart from the Heavenly Father allowing them to. Now, David gets to this point, and he, he has to pause again. Remember how he paused before, and he's like, these thoughts are just too much for me. He does it again in verse 17. He says, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand when I awake, I am still with you. So God cares about every single detail of your life. And he's with you through every single detail of your life. And he made you for these details. And he planned them in advance. Now, as we get ready to go into the rest of the psalm, get ready. Uh, let me read this in preparation in Romans 8, 28. It says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. There we see God's purpose again. And it involves us. God causes all things, all things in our life, to work together for good for us according to his purpose. And then we see what that purpose is. He states it in verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, you know, ages past, he predestined, he thought of us beforehand and determined our destiny, to be conformed to the image of his son. He's, he's wanting to bring many sons to glory through Christ that would bear the, the image of Christ, which is the radiance of the living God. That he would make us like him. That's what God and his project is, is to save a people for his own possession. So it says, to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these he, whom he predestined, he also called. He called you to himself at some point in history. That's your testimony. Those whom he, justified, those whom he called, he also justified. He declared you to be righteous because of Christ. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It is spoken of as if it's past tense, but that shouldn't surprise us if God's predestining us before the foundation of the world. If he's working it all according to his purpose, uh, it's as if you're already glorified. It's a done deal. So God is at work in you to make you like Christ through the details through his presence in the details. 
And through his planning, not only that you would go through these details, but that you'd be conformed to the image of Christ. And so what's God going to do to conform you? Well, he's going to change you. He's got to change you. When, when you're born into this world, you're sinful. And you're separated from God. You're, you've sinned and fallen short of his glory to which, you're going to try to, which we're going to be dis, uh, restored to in the future. In verses 19 through 22, we finally understand the circumstances that David is going through. It's interesting because he has not let us in on that up to this point. He's, he's told us that he's reflecting on God's knowledge. He's reflecting upon God's presence and God's planning and his purpose. But now he starts to break into expressing what, he's, what he is feeling inside. David's endangered by idolatrous enemies. Look at verse 19. It says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. For they speak against you wickedly. And your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. This verse falls into the category of what we call imprecatory psalms, meaning that they call down curses upon enemies and express hatred of the enemies of God. Now, before I go into this and try to help us understand it a little better, let me just say that I think sometimes Christians have experienced the death of outrage when we see the wickedness of our world, we should be outraged. And we'll express how and why in just a few moments. But when we first read this, though, we should have a little bit of attention because in the New Testament, we see that Jesus tells us that we ought to love our enemies. And here's David saying, I loathe them. I hate them with the utmost Hatred. But leave that thought for a moment. We need to understand what David's circumstances are here. Who is David? Well, first of all, David is God's chosen king who he's placed over Israel, his people. And God has promised Israel a land, has he not? And they are his people. And he has given them a mandate to go in and take the land. And there are people in the land and people that are destroyed along the way, like the Amorites, who have been given 400 years to repent, we read about in the Old Testament. But they are supposed to defeat all of these enemies that are enemies of God. And if you read the account of David's life, you see repeatedly that David is at war. Almost no rest. In 2 Samuel 22, verse 15, it gives a good summary of this. It says, once again, there was a battle between the Philistines. Listen to that again. Once again, there was a battle against the Philistines. David went down with his men to fight the Philistines, and he became exhausted. <laughs> I know he's physically exhausted in that one battle there, but I think that this was an exhausting thing for David. Another battle with the Philistines. Another battle with the Philistines. So he is a king in this circumstance who leads an army to defend God's people and defeat God's enemies. And he knows that he can only gain a victory if God himself fights on their behalf. So Deuteronomy 20 verse 3 was a promise that God had given that he would fight their victories for them. He shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, you are approaching the battle against your enemies today. Do not be faint-hearted. Do not be afraid or panic or tremble before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. 
So David knows that there are these enemies against him that he fights against over and over and over again. And he knows that they'll only be victorious if it's of the Lord, if the Lord fights the battles for them, obviously through them. And so it should be no wonder then he would pray for victory. O Lord, slay the wicked. And remember also that David is the king that God promised in 2 Samuel 7 to uh, make his covenant with him that he would have a descendant sitting on his throne forever. There would be this descendant, this seed of David that would be the greater David. And so David, uh, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant would be Jesus Christ. He's the greater David. So David's a type of this greater king. And remember also that David's a prophet. We see in the New Testament that he was a prophet. In Matthew 22, verses 42 through 44, Jesus says, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. And he said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. So he's making a point there, that, and he, he, he reveals that he is the son of David. But David speaks of the son of David as Lord, speaking to another person called Lord. And we, we believe, as we see further revelation, that uh, you know, this is the Lord God, the Father, and the Lord, the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. But notice what he, he says, that, that David was prophesying. Being a prophet, he said these things. And, and he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until what? Until I put your enemies beneath your feet. So David, he was at warfare. He was the king of the people of God, Israel. And he had a mandate to defeat God's enemies. And he prayed that God would win their battles for them. And they were dependent upon him to do that. And he is also a prophet and a type of Christ who looks forward and sees the ultimate victory that Christ would have when he comes. See, in the future, Christ will defeat his enemies. The book of Revelation, verse 19 says... It says what God's going to do through what Christ is going to do. It says in verse 11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, that so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So I think we can understand what David's saying here. If we look back at Psalm 139, verse 19 and through 22, notice how David describes his enemies. He says they are wicked, men of bloodshed, enemies of God who hate God and speak against him and take his name in vain. And David knows how God feels about such people. In Psalm 11, verse 5, it puts it bluntly, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul, get this again, his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. God has a strong, visceral reaction to people who are wicked. He hates Wicked people from his soul. The very depth of the being of God. According to Proverbs, if you go through and see what God hates, 
He hates their ways. He hates their thoughts, their worship, their actions, and their evil deeds. You see, God is holy and perfect and righteous and just. And he is a just judge who must bring the verdict of guilty upon the wicked. They're condemned. He will discipline. He will judge rebellion. In Psalm 7, verses 11 through 13, it says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. He says it more tersely in Psalm 145, 20. The Lord preserves all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. And Psalm 15 promises the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Indeed, Luke chapter 13 shows Jesus speaking of that final judgment. And he says, in that day some will expect to be welcomed by God into his kingdom. Yet others are going to face fiery judgment Verse 27, he says, depart from me, you workers of evil. They'll be confined, he says, to to a, a place of forever suffering. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There is a hell. And those in hell will forever experience the holy hatred of God called his wrath. So what David here is doing is just simply aligning himself with God. <laughs> you know, these are God's enemies, so they're his enemies. God hates them and loathes them, so he hates and loathes them. He doesn't want, God doesn't want anything to do with them. He doesn't want anything to do with them. And he wants to slay them and because God wants to slay them. So he shares the holy hatred of God toward bloodthirsty enemies of God. Now here's the question. Are we, in some sense, supposed to share in this intense feeling toward people? I would propose that there is a place to have a righteous, intense, passionate indignation towards people who promote and perform acts of notorious wickedness. We should have that kind of outrage and righteous anger. Just think about people like like ISIS chopping the heads off of Christians. Think about those who who do uh, sex trafficking, kidnapping young girls to make a profit off of them to be abused. Think about serial killers and, and abortion doctors and school shooters. And the list goes on and on and on. We should have an outrage. We should have an anger that's righteous over these things. And think about if you are in wartime. If you're fighting a just war, which we should want to fight just wars if we fight them. When you're at battle, you're in a firefight, you want to kill your enemy. So I believe that there are places where we should share in God's righteous, holy hatred. We should feel the way that God does toward the wicked. And in fact, that's what we pray. I was talking to uh, my daughter's boyfriend about this, that when we pray, come Quickly, Lord Jesus. What are we praying? Oh, oh, we pray for us. You know, the, it, what a beautiful time that will be. We shall see him and we shall meet him face to face and we shall be like him and we'll be welcomed into heavenly dwelling places and we're going to reign with Christ. This is going to be wonderful for us. But also, we're praying for him to come and what's he going to do when he comes? He's going to slay the wicked. So that's what we're praying as well. Revelation 19, 17 through 19 is going to take place. 
It says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And Psalm 2 says, He will dash them to pieces. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. We do have to be careful, though, that our anger is a righteous anger. That it's not a self-righteous, we're, I'm better than you perspective. That it's not a, a vengeful anger just over what somebody has done. But we need to remember that there's hope for the wicked. There's hope for the wicked. That's what the gospel's about. You see, we, according to Ephesians chapter 2, what were we? We were children of wrath. We were enemies of God. We were ungodly sinners. But God made a way that he could be just, that he could punish Sin, he could punish someone for sin and wickedness and ungodliness. And yet he could justify the one who has faith in Christ. Romans 5, 6 says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, he goes on to say, But God demonstrates his own love. See, God can hold love and wrath together perfectly in his being. They're both attributes. He demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. You see all that? We were enemies. We were ungodly. We were sinners. We were unrighteous. We were helpless. And we were objects that should have been receiving God's wrath. He saved us from the wrath of God because Christ did something, didn't he? God's holy hatred of sin and sinners was aimed towards the Lord Jesus Christ who became a propitiation on our behalf. He appeased the wrath of God. And all who have faith in Christ are declared not guilty and condemned and cast into hell, but are declared to be righteous, freely forgiven. So that's how we love the wicked we can have that righteous indignation, but we can also do as Jesus bid us to do, to love. As Romans tells us, to, to give a cold cup of water, to, to do acts of kindness to people who are not believers. And to hold out the gospel, which is the only hope they will have not to face the wrath of God. So that's part of what this circumstance you are in is for, is the gospel. People need that more than anything. But God is not only interested in you sharing the gospel, but also in you growing through this circumstance. And that's what we see David do at the very end. He's looking at all these idolatrous, wicked people. And then all of a sudden he thinks what we should think. I better look at myself. I better get God to look at me. So he prays this, verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. See, the, the heart of the problem with us, we, we still sin. And the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Jesus says that all of this wickedness comes from the heart. 
from within the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, fornications, theft, murders, adultery, all of this in Mark chapter 7. And the problem even further is Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? So we, we need God's help in looking in and seeing this idol factory of a heart. We, we have this tendency to, to cling to things and, and want our selfish desires and, and make things that we actually worship. We want them more than God sometimes. We need him to reveal these things to us. Hebrews 4.13 gives us hope. It says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. We're an open book before God. I mean, if he knows us, he's with us, he made us, he planned us, uh, you know, all these things that we've just studied, then he surely can get to the heart of the matter and reveal it to us. So he prays, search me, O God, and know my heart. That's a scary prayer to pray, but it's one we need so much if we're going to change. God, look in my heart and show me the ways in which I sin. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, he says. A lot of our prayers tend to be focused on changing our circumstances. And, and God, that's okay. You know, God has many prayers in the Bible where somebody cries out to him uh, for changing the circumstances. And God sometimes answers that prayer to change your circumstances. But God is way more interested in changing you than he is your circumstances. Because your circumstances are divine by him to change you. In verse 24 he says, See if there be any hurtful way in me. Now the word that's translated hurtful there in verse 24 is translated in many other ways in different translations. It's a, a grievous way or a wicked way or an offensive way or a rebellious way. But I like the way the New English translation translates it as idolatrous. Because that's really the heart of things, isn't it? We're either submitting to, serving, loving God, or we're serving idols. Idols of our own making. David ends with this, and lead me in the way everlasting. That's the plan that God has for your life. Is to help to change you. To enable you to live according to the fruit of the Spirit. To walk by the Spirit. To walk in faith. To, man to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you received. A manner worthy of the gospel. To imitate Christ. Ask yourself while you're in the circumstances you're in today. What do I need to repent from, O oh Lord? And grant me repentance. Help me to change. God cares about every little detail of your life. And God is with you in every moment. God made you for this moment. He planned your days. And he's wanting to change you. I pray these things encourage you as you continue to live through these circumstances and the rest of your life. Let's pray. God, it is amazing to see the intimacy and the, the closeness that you have to us. The beauty of the relationship we can have with you. And we pray, Lord, that you would look into our hearts Convict us of our sin. Help us to change. Lord, we ask that you would cause us to, as we think about the wicked, that we would be so grateful and thankful that you opened our eyes that we might see. And we pray that you would save, O oh Lord, that you would draw people to yourself, that people who are wicked would not have to face the wrath of God. We pray for the people in our lives, children that are unbelievers, co-workers, family, neighbors. We pray that you would save and use us, O oh Lord, to hold out the gospel of life. In Christ's name I pray, amen.